Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. As BC surveys the damage done by flooding and mudslides to major highways, farms, and towns, the hard work of rebuilding begins. It's an immense task that will cost the province, insurance companies, and the people affected. When the atmospheric river first came down on the West Coast, we had environment reporter Catherine Blaisbaum on the show. To some degree, this will have to be derived from engineered assets, like things that we build, but there's also a lot of attention being focused now on sort of natural climate solutions. So preserving our watersheds and our drainage systems such that they can be part of mitigating against devastating impacts from flooding. The concern is that, you know, with development, we lose some of those kind of natural solutions that are kind of built into Mother Nature to help sort of take care of us. Catherine went looking for how exactly people are figuring out how to put a price on those natural solutions. Governments often aren't even aware of the goods and services that a specific natural resource provides, let alone the dollar value of those goods and services. Catherine will lead us through the idea of eco-assets, why this has some people worried, and how this thinking might help us cope with climate change. This is The Decibel. Catherine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So this idea of putting a price, essentially, on nature, I'd imagine this is a pretty heated debate that we're wading into here. It really is, and it is quite complicated. So I've been on a bit of a roller coaster ride as I've been reporting on this um, in terms of understanding what exactly is being proposed and also wrapping, you know, sort of my head around whether and how natural assets could become their own asset class. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot here. So let's just start with the basics to begin. What is a natural asset? Okay, so natural assets, they can sometimes also be known as eco-assets. And that refers to the stock of natural resources and ecosystems that provide goods and services to governments and their populations. It could be wetlands, rivers, lakes, forests, fields, coastal marshes, dunes, and even soils that capture carbon, for example. So unlike agricultural or mining resources, natural assets aren't subject to harvesting or extraction for the purposes of generating cash flow. So I'm going to give you an even more tangible example to really set the stage for our conversation. In the town of Gibsons on the Sunshine Coast in BC, it is really a leader, a global leader on uh, natural asset management. So in 2014, which was, you know, all seven, almost eight years ago now, the town adopted an asset management plan that explicitly recognizes natural assets alongside traditional capital assets like highways and bridges. And uh, soon after, it became a matter of municipal policy that before investing in built infrastructure that serves a single purpose, the town has to first determine whether nature could do the same job at a lower price with added benefits. So I can give you a pretty concrete example. The st stormwater management modeling showed that new development in Upper Gibsons, which is sort of on a plateau at the foot of uh, what's called Mount Elephantstone, it could cause additional water runoff and flooding in Lower Gibsons, which is towards the coast. The municipality could either build a $4 million concrete drainage system to send the water to the ocean, or it could expand the natural stormwater ponds in White Tower Park for less than $1 million. So the town has obviously opted for the latter. And 
those service delivery and cost comparisons are developed through, you know, a combination of software tools. And these are the tools that, you know, a lot of other municipalities across the country are using to develop inventories or, you know, do modeling to understand their natural assets or even value them. So an example would be in New Brunswick, the town of Riverview, it's modeled scenarios within the Mill Creek watershed to see how four wetlands would respond under different climate and development conditions. And protecting the wetlands, it was determined, could save the town upward of $2.7 million in engineered stormwater management. The city of Saskatoon has applied or is in the process of applying to the recently announced new $200 million natural infrastructure fund. And that's a first of its kind federal program aimed at supporting infrastructure projects that use natural or hybrid approaches. I would imagine this is kind of wrapped up in the idea of fighting climate change and and these kind of natural disasters that we've been seeing happen more frequently. Can you explain, I guess, how the idea of fighting climate change ties together with this? For sure. So, you know, this year we've had lots of evidence of climate change, whether it was heat waves, wildfires, droughts, floods and storms. And perhaps nowhere in Canada has been as hard hit as B.C. We had the deadly heat dome that claimed hundreds of lives this past summer. And as everyone listening knows, you know, there was the devastating flooding just last month that just took out parts of communities and uh, highway networks. So basically, in addition to mitigating, we have to start adapting. So We need to figure out ways to address the fact that more frequent and more intense climate change-fueled weather events are on the horizon. So how do we deal with this? Do we build a new concrete pipe that sends stormwaters out to the ocean? Or do we expand and restore a wetland so that its ponds can intercept that stormwater flow? To grasp fully this concept of what a natural asset is. Can you help us understand how accountants, I guess, think about assets in general? Like, like what is an asset? Right. So that is sort of at the foundation of this conversation, obviously. And I'm going to sort of peg this to the public sector accounting board's definition of an asset, because that's largely what we're talking about here. But so the public sector accounting board, it it set standards for governments, hospitals, universities, First Nation governments, and some school boards. So it defines an asset as having three essential characteristics. What I've learned in this coverage is that Flood mitigation actually is kind of the best example to illustrate the uses of natural assets. Does the wetland have the capacity to provide future net cash flows and goods and services? So probably not on the future net cash flows. Wetlands aren't typically up for sale. But do they provide a good or service? Not really a good, but yes, a service. Stormwater management, carbon sequestration, filtering out contaminants. Okay, second point, public sector entity control access to the benefit. This one is a little bit tricky because... Often the municipalities, for example, don't own the natural asset, but they're responsible for land use planning and management. So in that case, does the municipality control access to the benefit? Yes, it is responsible for service delivery. On the third point, does the transaction that gave rise to the entity's control has already occurred? That one's probably the stickiest requirement to meet because Crown lands and public lands don't really have a transaction record. They tend to not have been purchased. And so there isn't really, you know, a record that you can go back to and say, okay, what was the historical cost associated with this? Who actually owns it? Can you give us an example of, I guess, some of the other more more traditional assets that we would think of that, that governments have? Sure. So the most obvious example would be tangible capital assets like highways and bridges. And in fact, tangible capital assets weren't even included on public sector books until a couple of decades ago. So the idea of adding an asset class while challenging isn't unprecedented. 
Okay, so let's really try to break this down here. So what you're saying is that the Public Sector Accounting Board gets to say what an asset is. And and generally, when it comes to government assets, that's included things like bridges and highways. And previously, things like a watershed would not have been allowed on that list. But now they're considering changing that, right? Right. So municipalities across the country are already managing nature as if it were an asset. What's missing here is them being reflected on the books. And that is important because governments often aren't even aware of the goods and services that a specific natural resource provides, let alone the dollar value of those goods and services. So when an economic argument is being made to develop a wetland, for example, decision makers don't know the value of preserving the ecosystem. And there's essentially no business case for leaving nature alone. As the Municipal Natural Assets Initiative Executive Director Roy Brook put it in an interview with me, Basically, the exclusion of natural assets from financial statements is a statement of its own. He said, quote, by not including them, governments are still putting a value on nature. It just happens to be zero. So what are the main challenges in adding natural assets to public accounts then? I guess, what are the dissenting perspectives to to doing this? The matter of valuation is where the discussion around natural assets becomes controversial and, as I put it, borderline existential. So I recently attended a public sector accounting board discussion group meeting. I was there virtually as an observer, and it was clear that accountants are divided on this issue, largely because natural assets are like nothing they've ever had to deal with. So some of the sticky questions that came up during that discussion and in conversations that I've had with accountants and fluvial geomorphologists and, you know, financial directors of municipalities are these. How do we put a price on nature? You know, should we even try? Who does it belong to, if anyone at all? And so an example that was given was the Mississippi watershed. It includes two Canadian provinces and covers about 40% of the continental United States. How could any government reasonably calculate the value of the portion of the watershed from which it derives services? So even if natural assets are allowed to be included in financial statements, you know, credit rating agencies would likely factor them out and focus on real cash flows, is what I'm told. And that's because one entity's valuation approach could differ meaningfully from another's. And another another challenge or concern would be if auditors can't get comfortable with a new multi-billion dollar asset class, given the potential for overvaluation. You know, one government could look richer than another, even if it's not. What are the financial consequences, I guess, for a government if that does happen, if we do move towards that reality? So basically, you know, the argument for including natural assets on the books is just, you know, more information. Right now, we don't, you know, a lot of governments don't have a clue what natural resources they rely on. And so the consequence, I think people hope, will be a deeper understanding of our relationship with nature and in turn, the better management of it to the benefit of taxpayers, because hopefully it'll cost less to provide services, and, you know, just people in general in terms of climate change mitigation, so helping to stave off global warming, and also just healthier air, less flooding, those sorts of things. But what about the other things we get from the natural world, like, you know, the health benefits of walking in a park, or even just the mental health benefits of being in nature? What about that? So that's a good question. Um, And I think proponents of including natural assets on public accounts would say, look, we're we're not here to try to put a dollar 
value on nature itself. Just like the value of a human being is distinct from the salary she makes, so too is the value of a natural resource from the services it provides. So that's why proponents would say, let's start with coming up with a minimum value of the services that nature provides, because there are so many intangibles. And that's something that was brought up at the Public Sector Accounting Board meeting that I attended in November. Uh, Helen Bobby Wash, she's an FCPA, and she works predominantly with First Nations in financial management and reporting. And she basically said, you know, I have great difficulty with connecting dollar values to assets. She basically wanted to know, how do you put a price on nature when it offers so many intangible and conceptual benefits like education, tradition, culture, spiritual health, and mental well-being. So there are some serious questions around that, not the least of which being the matter of ownership and the fact that there are, you know, over 100 comprehensive land claim and self-government negotiation tables across the country right now. So there is the matter of land claims. And so there's a desire, I think, to involve and engage Indigenous communities in the process uh, as we sort of determine whether or not these should be included and how. From everything you've seen from your reporting on this, do you get the sense that that we're moving towards some kind of valuation of nature in this way? Is this is this kind of inevitable? It seems to be the case. I mean, the, the private sector is seems bound to do it kind of no matter what, as we're seeing with the New York Stock Exchange. I think it was just in September announced the development of a new kind of investment vehicle uh, known as a natural asset company. So in that case, owners of natural assets, including governments, would be able to create a corporation that holds the rights to the ecosystem services provided by a particular natural resource. So this is happening. You know, it's just a matter of momentum and kind of scaling it and transferring it or applying it into the public sector where most of the land and resources lies. And what are the consequences, I guess, of not doing this? What might happen if we if we don't eventually move in this direction? Well, I think there are a couple of consequences, you know, one being just not doing as good of a job as we can in working with nature to protect our communities and our infrastructure. And, you know, some of the people that I spoke with pointed to what's going on in BC as like a a really good example. You know, we can't fight nature anymore. We can't control it. You ignore nature at your peril is the way one woman put it. And so, you know, if we don't really start conceiving nature as something that provides services to us, then it will continue to be degraded in favor of, you know, for example, development. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us today to to walk us through this. Thanks for having me. I know it's a lot to take in and quite complicated, but it's important. And I hope that everyone out there gets a little bit of a sense for what the heck I'm talking about. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Tim and Johnson is our intern. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby is our editor. Michal Stein edited this episode with help and mixing from Kyle Fulton. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Catherine Blaisbaum. You can find more of her work at theglobeandmail.com. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at ManikaRW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.